Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Episode 88, The Pact of the Kings. For nearly 80 years, the Hellenistic world has been dominated by the three great powers, the Seleucid Empire, Antigone Macedonia, and Ptolemaic Egypt. Warfare was a near-constant feature of the 3rd century, but none of the successor dynasties seemed to be able to gain a decisive edge over the others and reunite Alexander's long-dead empire. Yet in 204, the situation had dramatically changed. Ptolemy IV's unexpected demise, the political infighting among his ministers for control over the boy king Ptolemy V, and the rebellion of the Egyptians in the Thebaid brought the once-prosperous realm to its knees. These calamities could not have come at a worse moment, for while the fortunes of the Ptolemies were plummeting, the others were at the peak of their strength. Philip V and Antiochus III were some of the most ambitious warrior kings of the entire period. Eager for the opportunity to destroy their long-hated rivals and divide the spoils between themselves. When we last left Antiochus in the spring of 205, he had just completed his Anabasis, the campaigns launched throughout much of Western and Central Asia in order to assert his authority over the long-neglected regions of his empire, earning him the self-styled epithet Antiochus the Great. In a complete reversal of the situation from nearly 20 years before, the Seleucid household had replenished itself after Antiochus was left the last male heir of the family. His wife, Queen Laodike III, had given birth to the crown prince Antiochus in 220, who by now entered the earliest stages of manhood, and was already made co-ruler in 211, shortly before his father departed for the east. Between 218 and 211, she provided him with two other sons named Seleucus and Mithridates, along with at least one daughter named Laodike. After Antiochus's return, another daughter named Cleopatra was born in 204, and after her was Antiochus, a grand total of six children, all of whom would be kings and queens in the decades to come. With the upper satrapies and the line of succession secure, Antiochus's next action was to look westward back to Asia Minor. During the king's absence, power over the region had been transferred to his minister, Zeuxis. With the betrayal of Achaia still fresh in his mind, Antiochus needed someone trustworthy to watch over his Anatolian territories, lest another potential usurper try and establish themselves in the area. Zeuxis' loyalty is evident given the degree of autonomy to which he was entrusted with, and he spent most of his time overseeing rather than conducting campaigns. Queen Laodike also seems to have been involved in the administration to some capacity as well, for we have a letter between her and the city of Sardis regarding the establishment of festivals and royal cults. This policy changes sharply in the period following Antiochus's return. The years 203-202 are marked with Seleucid conquests in Western Asia Minor, preserved by an extensive epigraphical record of over 40 separate inscriptions logging the king's actions. Zeuxis marched into Caria in southwestern Anatolia, and either captured or received the capitulation of the settlements of Amazon, Alabanda, Alinda, Milasa, and Labranda. Inscriptions from these sites suggest that Antiochus was keen on trying to limit the destructive tendencies of his army, prioritizing the religious sanctuaries to avoid blackening his reputation with sacrilege. An inscription from Teos reveals that Antiochus and Laodike even made a personal visit to the city along with their entourage in 203. 
The citizens in turn thanked the king for liberating them and granting them the status of religious inviolability, along with the tax exemptions that came with it. Asia Minor was a complex mixture of royal land, independent city-states, and leagues. However, each one of the cities that were targeted by Seleucid forces were at one point under the control of the Ptolemaic dynasty. The gradual demobilization of the Egyptian army under Ptolemy III and Ptolemy IV saw the neglect of its distant territories dotting the coastline of the Aegean Sea. Yet the campaigns must be tied to the untimely death of Ptolemy IV, which was kept a secret for months until the end of 204. Ptolemy V's ministers, Sosibius and Agathocles, knew full well that the king's death nullified the treaty that was struck with Antiochus back in 217. A renewed war over Coily Syria was inevitable, but Egypt was in a far weaker position than it had been on the onset of the Fourth Syrian War. The Great Revolt was in full swing, siphoning money and manpower to cope with the rebel pharaoh Haranophorus, and the poor economic conditions were going to make the hiring of mercenaries a fiscal nightmare. Conversely, Antiochus was now a seasoned commander, with the full military might of his empire behind him, no longer plagued by rebellions from ambitious officials or wayward dynasts. Among the minister's first act was to dispatch an embassy to Antiochus and try delaying his attacks, while also sending two more missions to Greece. One, led by Scopas the Aetolian, was to hire mercenaries, and the other was sent to the court of Philip V. After the Peace of Phoenicae in 205, information about Philip's actions are limited to a few scattered references, but it is clear that he was keeping busy. The somewhat anticlimactic end of the First Macedonian War with Rome left the Antigone Kingdom in a state of security, with the Greeks on the mainland bending the knee to his authority. No longer able to expand further west, as per the terms of the treaty, he might have campaigned in Thrace to punish them for attempting to raid Macedon during the war. Like Antiochus, the Antigone was also being productive and enjoying his marriage with Queen Polycratea. Their eldest son Perseus was born in 212, followed by another boy named Demetrius and a daughter named Apame. This daughter was actually the main focus of the Egyptian mission, as Sosibius proposed a marriage arrangement between Apame and Ptolemy V in the hopes of gaining Antigonid's support against the Syrian king. Philip declined the offer, and Sosibius died shortly afterwards anyways. It is time we come to the central point of this episode. Polybius, who is the principal source for this event, claims that representatives of Philip and Antiochus met with one another during the winter of 203-202. According to him, the two kings forged a secret pact to invade the now gravely weakened Ptolemaic kingdom, destroy it outright, and split the territory between themselves. Quote, Is it not astonishing that when Ptolemy IV was alive and had no need of their help, they, Antiochus and Philip, were prepared to assist him? But when he died leaving a young son, the preservation of whose kingdom fell on them according to the ties of nature, they urged each other on to partition the child's kingdom and to destroy the orphan, without even putting forward the slightest pretext to justify their iniquity, as tyrants do, but acted in such a violent way like beasts of prey that they deserve to be said to live the life of fishes, among which it is said that though they are of the same species, the destruction of the smaller is the food, and the livelihood of the larger... Who can look at this treaty as into a mirror and not see the impiety to the gods and the cruelty of men, as well as the unbounded ambition displayed by these two kings? End quote. 
For Polybius, this pact held major ramifications for the rest of the Mediterranean world. Not only because it would result in the invasion of the Aegean Islands, Asia Minor, and Coeli Syria, but the ambitions of these kings would lead to the decisive intervention of a seemingly unimportant power, the Roman Republic. This is quite a lot to take in, so before we get ahead of ourselves, let us take a moment to step back and analyze one of the most controversial moments of Hellenistic studies. Most scholars concur that there was some sort of agreement hashed out between the two rulers. The question is a matter of degree. Was this an actual alliance intent on carving up the Egyptian kingdom, or merely a mutual accommodation to stay out of the way of each other's military operations? If it was real, what sort of impact did it have on Rome's decision to intervene? Polybius himself is quite explicit in his language that this was a formal treaty, not just a tacit understanding, but the fact that it was made in secret raises questions. Other sources like Appian and Justin do back the existence of the pact as well, but their details vary. Perhaps more information can be gleaned from the subsequent events. In the spring of 202, both kings began their campaigns in earnest. Antiochus would launch an invasion of Coeli Syria, inaugurating the Fifth Syrian War, which would last until 195. I will reserve my discussion of this conflict for a later episode, but the Seleucid ruler managed to score a devastating victory over the Ptolemaic army in 200. Meanwhile, Philip turned first to the cities of the Hellespont. Philip's in-law, Prusius I of Bithynia, was an important ally on the Bosphorus, but the Antigone ruler sought to strengthen his control over the region to ensure that he had the upper hand in any maritime operations. Two major powers also held sway in the area, the city-state of Rhodes and Attalus I of Pergamon. The Pergamene king in particular had already displayed hostility against Macedonia through an alliance with the Roman Republic just a few years prior, and preemptively limiting their naval capabilities would have been useful in any future conflict. Many cities were also members of the Aetolian League, who had been honoring the peace of Phoenicia in the meanwhile, so it was an underhanded opportunity to reduce the power of his most persistent foes. Lysimachia and Chalcedon were forced at spear point to withdraw their membership from the League and join an alliance with Macedonia, while Chios and Merlea were brutally sacked and had their citizens enslaved by Philip, their now ravaged settlements having been handed over to Prusias to oversee. Even the independent and largely friendly island of Thassos was attacked by the Antigonic king without just cause, who tricked the city's leaders to allow him entrance under false pretenses. Philip's aggression continued into the following year in the eastern Aegean, setting out in the spring of 201 from the recently captured island of Samos towards Chios in order to lay siege. But there he met a fleet of Pergamene, Byzantine, and Rhodian ships gathered together in alliance against Macedonia. Hundreds of ships, both large and small, battled throughout the day, and by the end of it all, Philip controlled the battlefield. Though he was able to claim victory as the last man standing, even capturing the personal warship of Attalus as a trophy, the skill of the Rhodian sailors inflicted enormous casualties on the Macedonian navy, with nearly 10,000 dead and dozens of vessels destroyed. With the enemy's fleet scattered, Philip took the opportunity to punish Attalus for his actions by landing his forces in Asia Minor and attacking the territory surrounding Pergamon. Here he laid waste to everything he could see, including many of the sanctuaries in the area, before departing when he was unable to storm the Pergamene Acropolis. When he was about to set sail once again, he faced yet another fleet from Rhodes, 
who tried blocking his exit by positioning themselves at the nearby island of Lade. A battle ensued with Philip emerging the victor, and once again he headed back to the coast, turning the city of Miletus into his personal base of operations. For the rest of the summer season, he campaigned in southeastern Asia Minor, capturing many cities in Caria. Meanwhile, the Rhodian and Pergamene fleets conspired to blockade Philip while he was in Bargilia throughout the winter of 201-200, but the king managed to escape using a trick in the cover of darkness, sailing back to Macedonia while leaving his new Asian territories under guard. So ended the conquests of Philip in Asia Minor, who was now in command of most of the Ionian cities and Aegean islands. One of the controversies of the pact was Philip's intentions during these operations. In many of the surviving manuscripts of Polybius's histories, the original Greek text reads that Philip was responsible for conquering Aegypton, Egypt. Most translations and editors believe this to be a mistake, and have amended it to the very similar sounding Agaion, the Aegean. This was where Philip spent the years 202-200 campaigning while Antiochus was busy fighting in Coeli, Syria and it does seem unrealistic to assume that the Antigonid king was aiming for the conquest of Egypt, given the lack of interest in the region by his family in the past, whereas Antiochus appeared to be in a better position to conquer it. However, Philip's actions in the Aegean need not be incongruous with the larger plan of attacking Ptolemaic interests. Many of the islands that were targeted, Samos, Kos, Bargilia, and so on, were closely tied within the Ptolemaic naval hegemony. If Philip was to pursue an Egyptian expedition, there was no way that he could have possibly done so without making sure his supply lines would not be compromised. Polybius reinforces this notion by stating that Philip ought to have sailed directly to Alexandria following his victory over the Rhodian forces at Lade, but failed to capitalize on the moment. The campaigns of Asia Minor make sense from an individual perspective, but is there evidence of Antigonid and Seleucid forces working together in tandem? Antiochus would have been preoccupied with the Fifth Syrian War, so the viceroy Zeuxis would have acted as his stand-in. Two separate fragments of Polybius state that Zeuxis provided supplies to Philip's army as per the requirements of the treaty. Once during his campaigns in Lycia, and the second time when the Antigonid army was blockaded in Caria and on the verge of starvation. If we look back earlier, none of the cities captured by Zeuxis during his own conquests were within Philip's sphere of influence or interest. In my eyes, the evidence seems to point towards a coordinated effort to destroy the Ptolemaic kingdom. There is no doubt that Philip or Antiochus would turn on each other as soon as there was no mutual foe, but the opportunity to wrestle away more territory is in line with how they are portrayed by both the historians and in propaganda. Each were highly ambitious and warlike men, bent on becoming world conquerors. This was a more realistic expectation for Antiochus, since he had campaigned as far east as the Hindu Kush expanded his domains in Asia Minor, taking the title of Great King, and very likely had eyes on European territories as well. Yet it must be noted that Polybius' treatment of Philip is a lot more controversial. At this point in his career, Philip is at his most depraved and tyrannical, a far cry from the virtuous young man during the earliest years on the throne. Corrupted by malignant advisors like Demetrius of Pharos, Philip's desire for an empire parallels his more heinous actions, like the supposed murder of Aratus of Sicyon or the inciting of massacres. His portrayal has quite a literary flair, setting up a rise and fall by tying the king's political power with his moral failings, and the villainy at this point sometimes borders on the absurd. 
Polybius is rightly celebrated for his astute and grounded observations about the events that radically changed the Mediterranean world. However, he was still a writer of his time, and not above portraying events in such a way that makes for a more compelling narrative. Clearly, though, the activity of the kings was of such concern that it compelled even hated enemies to join forces. Rhodes and Pergamon had long been competitors for influence in the eastern Aegean, but the threat posed by Philip and Antiochus was substantial enough to warrant their decision to form an alliance lest they both be destroyed. Attalus must have been on edge when Antiochus's armies pushed ever deeper into southern Anatolia, and the arrival of Philip only added fuel to the fire. Their failure to contain Philip to Greece meant that drastic actions needed to be taken if they were to preserve themselves from the oncoming onslaught. It was time to call upon a new, yet familiar ally, the Roman Republic. I would like to take this interlude to make a brief announcement. After five years of deliberation and requests from my listeners, I've decided to go ahead and make a Patreon page, available for people looking to support the show. While many of you have been extremely generous with one-time donations, many have also requested I set up Patreon as another avenue due to its convenience and familiarity. I've said no to the idea in the past because I didn't want to create any patron-exclusive rewards, and generally as a rule try to make things as open and accessible as possible for everybody. As such, patrons will not gain any special privileges over non-patrons, but any small amount that can be contributed goes a long way to alleviating the costs of running what has simply moved from a curious side hobby into a passion project. If you're interested, feel free to check out the link to my Patreon page on my website in the podcast description, or simply by searching Hellenistic Age Podcast Patreon. Now, back to the show. Between 204 to 201, the Eastern Mediterranean had undergone a violent transformation, with Antiochus now in control of Coily, Syria, Philip over the Aegean and Ionian coastlines, and the Ptolemies withered away to a very small portion of the Nile Delta. Yet it was about to experience another shakeup, as events behind the scenes were transpiring in order to put a stop to the ruthless expansionism of the Macedonian kings. During the interim between the Peace of Phoenice and the delegations, the Roman Republic managed to conclude their long struggle against Carthage in the Second Punic War, following the victory of Scipio Africanus at the Battle of Zama in 202. Though the Senate had been preoccupied with the invasion of Africa, they were keeping a close eye on the activities of Philip at this time. The First Macedonian War ultimately achieved its objectives by restricting Philip's activities to Greece, but its conclusion left feelings of resentment among the Romans, who were angry with the king, conspiring with Hannibal, and taking advantage of their weakened position. Yet it does not seem to have been sufficient motivation to launch directly into another war with Macedon immediately following the end of the Second Punic War. Despite the hesitation, the prompting for further conflict came rather quickly. In the fall of 201, delegations from Rhodes, Pergamon, Egypt, and Athens had been sent across the Adriatic in order to meet with the Senate and request military aid against the aggression of Philip V. This is a remarkable step, for the choice to get Rome involved would result in the gradual domination and outright subjugation of the Hellenistic East. As such, it is worth delving into the factors behind this action. Each of the parties who sent delegations had interacted with Rome to varying degrees, but the decision to call for a military intervention was a radical change in policy. The Ptolemies had maintained a friendly yet non-committal relationship with the Republic since the days of Ptolemy II Philadelphus. 
But now the Alexandrian government was even going so far to request that they protect the interests of Ptolemy V from Antiochus and Philip's aggression. Athens had received a single embassy from the Romans in 228 upon their victory over Queen Tuta, but remained neutral during the First Macedonian War. However, their relationship with Philip had rapidly deteriorated thanks to the seizure and execution of two Acarnanian men, who had illegally trespassed upon the Eleusinian Mysteries in September of 201. Athenian law justified the executions, but the Acarnanians were allied with Philip, and upon their protestations the king sent troops to raid the Attic countryside and seize several warships from the harbor. Of the delegations, the most convincing would come from Pergamon and Rhodes. Attalus I and Rome were allies during the First Macedonian War, and the king recently helped the Romans in the retrieval of a cult statue belonging to the great mother of Pessinus. The relationship between them was transactional during the war, but Attalus was the Republic's first ally in Asia, and as such, ought to have been given the attention that they deserved. Rhodes' decision to turn to Rome is perhaps the most surprising one. They were some of the most hostile critics of the Roman intervention during the First Macedonian War, and worked to actively make peace between the Aetolian League and the king for the sake of maintaining order in Greece. Yet according to historians, the Rhodian and Attalid delegations warned the Republic about the ruthless attacks by both Philip and Antiochus. Appian states that the Rhodians explicitly brought up the alliance between the kings, which by now must have moved from being a secret to public knowledge. The sudden influx of delegates leads us to our next question. Why appeal to Rome? Clearly their military prowess was well established to act as a sufficient counterbalance against Macedonia. The speed with which they dealt the Illyrians in the 220s and the victory over Carthage in the Second Punic War were certainly impressive. Realistically, only the Romans possessed enough manpower to be able to keep up with the Antigonid and Seleucid armies, who dwarfed the Greek states and smaller kingdoms. The Greeks by and large seemed to approve of the Republic's handling of Illyria but their handling of the First Macedonian War was less than ideal. Rome's commitment seemed half-hearted at times, with most of the heavy lifting being done by her Aetolian allies. This was the Senate's intention all along, to tie Philip down in Greece while they continued to focus on the Hannibalic threat. Roman commanders also earned a reputation for brutality, such as the mass enslavement of the residents of Aegina. The sack and despoilation of Syracuse in 212, the largest and most prestigious Greek city in the West, was enough for even Polybius to express his disapproval. In one famous instance, the Rhodian orator Thrasicrates directly called the Romans barbarians when trying to convince the Aetolians to renege on their alliance. But Realpolitik triumphed over any objections to the uncivilized manner of the Romans when they could be used as a weapon against Philip or to preserve their own independence. Philip's aggressive and brutal treatments of the cities of the Hellespont, while not too far off from the norm of ancient warfare, proved to be deeply unpopular with many Greeks, who saw him as little better than the Romans. His sacking of temples and sanctuaries caused widespread outcries of sacrilege, something which Antiochus seems to have been keen to avoid during his own invasion of Asia Minor. The threat of subjugation was incentive enough to look the other way. Such is the logic behind the request of the delegates. But what did the Romans have to gain from this decision? Scholars have often emphasized that the Romans were uniquely bellicose and opportunistic, with the success of the Second Punic War providing the necessary impetus to head across the Adriatic in pursuit of their next conquest. 
The bill to approve the Second Macedonian War was introduced by the consul Publius Sulpicius Galba, who had spearheaded much of the operations against Philip during the first conflict. He had the reputation of being something of a war hawk, personally responsible for many of the violent acts that gave the Greeks a bad first impression. Yet it was the Romans of the Comitia Centuriata and the prevailing tribune who flat out rejected the proposal. Though war with Carthage was officially over, the Republic had several lingering problems. Italy suffered widespread devastation from warfare and famine, which killed an enormous number of Roman and allied citizens. The census of 234 registered approximately 270,000 adult male citizens, but in 204, that number dropped to 214,000. Most of the Socii stayed loyal to Rome, but there seems to have been a genuine concern that further rebellions could break out. Gauls were attacking the Roman settlements of the Po Valley, as were enclaves of Carthaginian troops left behind. The veterans, some fighting almost continuously for well over a decade, were in the process of being settled on land that was depopulated by the fighting or captured from rebellious allies. War weariness made the prospects of an eastern expedition unappealing, even when presented with opportunities to plunder the wealth of Greece. There is little evidence to suggest that the Romans pursued the war with Macedonia based on the desire for booty and slaves. Neither is the notion that they were doing it out of a legal obligation towards the Greek states, as there were no long-standing formal alliances between them and the Republic. Case in point, the Aetolians apparently sent a delegation requesting Roman aid in 202 after the king's attacks on their own allies in the Hellespont, but the Senate was none too pleased by this visit. They had not forgiven what they perceived to be the League's betrayal of their past alliance when they independently made peace with Philip during the First Macedonian War. Another motion to pursue the war was put forward, but in his speech to the assembly, Galba pointed to a past foe, Pyrrhus of Epirus. Though the Epirot was one of Rome's greatest challenges inflicted severe casualties on Italian soil, Galba named Philip as the far deadlier threat. Epirus was but a small fraction of Greece, whereas the Antigna kingdom now included the entirety of the Greek peninsula and much of the Aegean. Hannibal was a Carthaginian outsider, but Philip might well be able to rally the Greeks of southern Italy and Sicily under his banner. The Republic had only just begun to rebuild following the destruction of Hannibal's armies, its once wayward allies recently brought into the fold. Dare they allow yet another marauding army lay waste to Roman territory when they are so weak? Absolutely not. Quote, Suppose you had been reluctant to cross to Africa. You would in that case still have Hannibal and his Carthaginians as your enemies in Italy to this very day. Let Macedonia have this war, not Italy. Let the cities and the countryside of our enemies suffer the devastation of sword and fire. We already know from experience that our campaigns are more successful and effective abroad than they are at home. Go and vote. May the gods help you and ratify the decision of the Senate. End quote. Galba's speech, or at least Livy's rendition of it, has been placed under scrutiny. The likelihood of a Macedonian invasion so soon after the devastating losses inflicted upon Philip's fleet near Chios seems doubtful. It is clear that Philip and Antiochus were seen as a major threat to the states of the east, but a coordinated attack on Italy seemed nowhere in the cards at this time. But it was a distinct possibility in the mind of the Romans, who had just experienced the ravaging of the Italian countryside by Hannibal's armies, and the deaths of many tens of thousands, 
whose grandfathers also fell in combat against the Pikes of Pyrrhus. The alarm of the Greek diplomats may have reinforced the notion that a defensive war was a necessary one, existence of the pact or not, if the Ptolemaic kingdom collapsed, Macedonia would only grow in power. Better to strike first than to be struck first. Such is often the excuse of many empires. Yet, if anything, it demonstrates just how opportunistic the Greek states were as well. They successfully convinced a foreign power to spend time and money to intervene on their behalf, drawing Philip's activities away from the Aegean and back to the mainland. Roman imperialism was indeed a real thing, but it's important to recognize the agency these other actors had in such a predatory political environment that had long existed before Rome ever got involved. Our loss of Polybius makes our assessment on the Roman intervention that much harder, and we aren't left with a terribly reliable explanation. Still, for as much as the pact plays in his framework, Polybius does not state that the knowledge of the pact's existence is the root cause of the Roman invasion. What he does seem to suggest is that Tyche, fate or fortune, is responsible for the Romans going to war against Philip and Antiochus. Hellenistic kingship was a violent and downright dirty business, which Polybius understood completely. Both Philip and Antiochus were praised by the historian as excellent kings for their devotion to warfare in comparison to the more passive Ptolemy IV. The choice to destroy the boy king Ptolemy V is on a different level, an act so treacherous that it was viewed as something of a crime against the gods. Quote, Who can look at this treaty as into a mirror, and not see the impiety to the gods and the cruelty to men, as well as the unbounded ambition displayed by these two kings? End quote. As both kings were at the height of their power, so too was their arrogance. In return for their obscene hubris, fortune sent the Romans after them. Upon hearing Galba's arguments, the people cast their votes once again, and made a final reluctant decision. Only a year after bringing Carthage to heel, the Romans were going to war. But unlike their first encounter with Macedonia, they did not have Hannibal Barca at their doorstep, nor were they spread out across Sicily or Hispania. Philip was to face the full might of the Roman military. Many of its legionaries were now battle-hardened veterans. And while the Senate would try its best to resolve the matter without resorting to open warfare, the legions were mobilizing in droves. Philip's ambition may have made him the most powerful man in Greece. And while it is said that fortune favors the bold, she often turns out to be quite the fickle mistress. Music